0: Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I am Gavia Baker-Whitelaw, and here is this week's co-host, Claire Biddles. Hello. So we are here with our most momentous episode of every year, which is our top 10 films of the year. Unlike most plebeian mainstream media outlets that foolishly do their <laughs> lists in mid-December uh we are clocking in in early to mid-January so we could fully appreciate the whole of 2023 and all it had to offer every year at Christmas I hold myself a little film festival of movies I missed <laughs> I still missed a lot this year because a lot of them weren't available in UK distribution but um It's going to be great. The way we format this is we will go in ascending order from 10 to one to
1: fully make the reveal yes so alternating exciting.
0: both of our <laughs> lists are classified we have not revealed each other's lists to each other usually i do do this in morgan but unfortunately uh due to her health issues she has not been able to watch enough films this year or two to do that which is very sad she has read 12 million books though as, as regular listeners and patreon subscribers <laughs> will know god knows she can give you a list of 150 best books of last year but yeah claire would you like to go first or shall i go first i think you should go first all right, go for it. My number ten. Dun, dun, dun. My number ten is the horror movie "Talk to Me," directed by Danny and Michael Philippou of Australia. I think probably quite a lot of uh, people will have heard of this movie. It was a big mainstream hit. The most fascinating element of this movie is that um, when you look up the directors, it turns out they are YouTube pranksters. <laughs> so that's their origin story, and it's like, what the fuck? but this movie is so scary and so good and so fun. The concept is that it's about a bunch of suburban Australian teenagers. It's so Australian. Sophie Wilde plays the protagonist. She is incredible. She's this kind of messy, troubled teen. So like she's grieving her mother's suicide. And the concept of like the horror world building is that there is this cursed hand where you hold this kind of this hand thing and it gives you a glimpse into the other side. So you see a dead person right in front of you. And if you hold it for long enough, that dead person speaks through you. Um, So it's like a really simple concept. It's sort of like a sleepover game or something. But the way it is filmed is so terrifying. And of course, because these are a bunch of irresponsible teenagers, they hold the hand too fast and she gets like possessed by dead people and followed around and stuff. And Sophie Wilde's performance is just so Compelling. She has this amazing face. There's this fantastic scene where she just gets super possessed and starts singing Edith Piaf songs in like a French accent. Her eyes are so scary and wide. I was just terrified and enjoy the fuck out of this movie. It was so original and so fun while also kind of fitting really well into that lineage of kind of teen horror movies. I don't really have anything deep to say about the film other than it was a total banger. It had some really good music. <laughs> wait did we see it together we saw fuck it together we did what am I even singing? saying <laughs> we saw it together in like a cinema with no one else there I think yeah
1: <laughs> this was like one of my like number 11 number 12 type yeah, choices I, so many in that it's, zone. I just found it like one of the best times I've had in the cinema this year yeah it was just really fun and a really solid it was just so good to see a solid horror great cast great script great music and not a sequel and yeah it was just it was so fun I really loved it a banger is true
0: yeah and there were so many horror movies this year where people were like oh it's so good and I watched them and I was like this is mid and I watch a lot of horror (laughs) movies I love horror movies but this was this was a year of overrated mid horror films I think Um, but Claire what is your number 10
1: My number 10 is a
0: little art film. don't know if you've heard of it
1: called Oppenheimer. (laughs) (laughs) Like, literally, what is there to say about Oppenheimer anymore? We did an episode on it. The thing about Oppenheimer is that I love this shit. It's just my favourite kind of thing. I love a big bells and whistles biopic. I love when there's a lot of guys in a film that I like... Uh, who have good faces. I like things that are corny. <laughs> and I'm going to reiterate that I think that I would like to see Christopher Nolan doing a full on uh, paranoid thriller.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Preferably
1: set in the Cold War. <laughs> great. Love to see him win. He won at the Golden Globes, which was last night as we are recording this. So what a great sort of tiny man.
0: Yeah. He's what like a lovely who I'm sure will wear just an average man's normal tux to the Oscars but there was a period during the press tour where he was wearing a sort of translucent oh. blouse with a bow and I couldn't oh, be more yeah. thrilled to see this like 50 year old dad where I was just like oh, fucking love this man um, very happy for him Love Christopher Nolan, who just seems like a fun, very responsible guy, which I love. A trait one loves to hear about in a A-list white male director, because God knows yeah. a lot of them do not fulfill those character traits. His speeches are always very fun. Yeah, I feel like it's very on brand for overinvested for us to slot in. I mean, you were the only person who's put this on the list. I didn't put it on my list. But we're slotting in at number 10, the film that like everyone else is putting at number one or two. It's like, yeah, that's what we got to go for.
1: It's like, you know what? It was great. It was my favorite. But I loved it. Four stars. Also, (laughs) I have not stopped thinking about something that Gav said about Oppenheimer, where (laughs) you said that Oppenheimer is a film about how Christopher Nolan admires Oppenheimer's skills as a project manager.
0: It's so fucking true. I was right. It's what it's about. He's just like, I love how he literally said in interviews, he was like, just talking about how organized the guy was. And it's like, Chris, this isn't what other people are watching the film for. (laughs)
1: So yeah, if you've not seen this uh, little scene film, go go
0: and watch (laughs) Oppenheimer. What was your number nine, Gav? My number nine was the only new release of 2023 that I have watched twice, which is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. Hell yeah! (laughs) directed by Christopher McQuarrie. If you slide on over to episode 283 of the Overinvested podcast. You can hear me and Stefan talk about it at length. I don't feel like I need to reiterate the qualities of this quite stupid but impeccably made action (laughs) movie, but I feel like it is, if not the best, then absolutely one of the best in the extensive and very patchy and weird Mission Impossible franchise where they really go through so many different tones and indeed casts. But this is, you know, Tom Cruise and his BFF, Chris McQuarrie, have like spent years polishing the formula for this. And also Hayley Atwell is basically the co-lead in this one. She's so good. She's so funny. There are so many absolutely jaw-dropping action set pieces in this. I fucking loved it. I watched it in the cinema and I was like gobsmacked. And then For my little birthday party, everyone came round and watched this movie, except for everyone who had COVID. So it was like, you know, three people came round. That's the size of the party I now host. Yeah, fantastic. Huge fun. Nothing smart to say about this. Extremely expensive, problematic fave. So yeah, what's yours?
1: This is where I'm going to start suggesting that we do double bills of our corresponding numbers, because... My number nine is the Icelandic epic Godland, which uh, tells the story of a missionary priest type guy from Denmark going to build a church in Iceland. Uh, It's by, I'm going to completely butcher this, Hilna Palmer's son. And this is the reason why we do this podcast in January, because I watched this on something like the twenty-first of December <laughs> <laughs> after missing it in the cinema. Highly rated by Morgan yeah. on Letterboxd. I as really well, so I really wanted to, to see Morgan. this one and
0: I missed it. Yeah.
1: I think that you I was watching actually and I was like, Gavia has to watch this. A lot of it is very Gavia coded. It's absolutely stunning to look at and I was gutted that I missed it in the cinema because the cinematography is stunning. One of my favourite little conceits is when a film says that it's based on something that isn't real <laughs> uh, and it kind of says that it's based on these photographs that were found in Iceland but those photographs don't, don't exist I don't think and there's kind of something going through it where the priest is also taking photographs but that these I don't know anything about like old photography techniques, but it's that like kind of one where you rub silver
0: on oh, the... silver plated. Yeah, yeah. It's got like a reaction with the... the that's what the light flashes part of it. It's like... Yeah. The, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm making yeah. it sound like I know what I'm talking about. I don't fucking know. No. <laughs> <laughs> but he's carrying around this like really, really heavy
1: and expensive camera with expensive material on his back the whole way through. And the film is shot... As though you're looking through one of those cameras. So like the aspect ratio is like that. And they kind of oh, outside it. of it.
0: Oh, it bangs
1: so much. It's so good. And a lot of it reminded me of, I've been, I watched it before Christmas when I was ill with the aforementioned COVID. And I was watching... A lot of I was catching up on new releases from 2023 that I'd missed, and also watching a lot of Werner Herzog films because I'm reading his memoir at the moment. And this felt like a real crossover between the two because it's got that kind of Herzogian something happening at the very edge of the world, and it's also about how man's futile attempt to Place control over what what he presumes is chaos, so it's kind of about man versus nature, but it's also about colonialism and marriage and and all these different ways in which this guy and mankind at large is trying to impose control and as well as that, it kind of reminded me of there's these like really stylized bits that are more like photographs that reminded me of like Pasolini the way that Pasolini kind of composes shots, and it's just like. Out of this world! I absolutely loved it. Very high recommendation for Godland, not just for Gavia, but for all the
0: listeners. I'm infuriated <laughs> with myself for not watching this because, like, I was like, I definitely want to see this, and then I guess I kind of forgot it. Maybe I didn't put it on my document of all the movies to watch in December. But yeah. this sounds even it's better quite than long I thought as well. Yeah,
1: and I think because I really wanted to see it in the cinema, and I was away the like three days that it was on or whatever, I was kind of like kicking myself that I didn't see it in the cinema for ages so that 's what made me kind of take a while to get to it, but very highly recommended what 's your number eight, please? It
0: is Return to Seoul by Davy Chu, who is a French Cambodian director. This is like an international co-production between a bunch of European countries, but it is set in Korea and it is about a French Korean adoptee who goes back to Korea kind of to reconnect with her biological parents, but it 's not really a standard narrative of that type it's more a character study of someone who is very chaotic and has a lot of unspecified issues to me this would be like the sister movie of passages this year because they both have these amazingly specific chaotic protagonists who are very <laughs> making a lot of decisions that are like based on spontaneous emotional whims that other people find alarming and confusing So it begins with her age 25 going to South Korea for the first time and she just shows up at this random boarding house and befriends this young woman who works there and the first scene is... In a restaurant, and you immediately get such a good idea of the protagonist, Freddie's personality, because you know, she's asking about local customs, she's learning from these two very welcoming people from like her general kind of age group, like, oh, you know, you don't pour a drink for yourself, you pour them for everyone else, and it's rude to pour in for yourself. And then she like immediately pours one for herself and then like confidently starts inviting all these random strangers around the bar to set her table and then has an extremely ill-advised one-night stand with one of them that she doesn't even remember in the morning. She's making a lot of choices, basically. (laughs) And then she goes to this international adoption agency that was basically adopting out loads and loads of South Korean babies to predominantly white parents overseas. So she was adopted by a middle-aged white couple in France who we don't really see much of. We only ever see her in the moment, which is another reason why this reminded me of passages because it's all like very very present day. The first half of the film takes place all over this kind of like two week period when she's reuniting with her biological father's family. And then it like does a time jump in the second half. And I was like so excited because it's just like I wasn't (laughs) expecting it at all. There's so many unpredictable things in this movie in a way that really Gels well with the unpredictability of the protagonist, who is played by a first-time actress named Jimin Park. It's not just like first-time actress; I don't think she auditioned for it. The director Davy Chu like just met her and was like, "You'd be really good at this." And it is absolutely an actor's movie. It is all about how fantastic her performance is and how specific she feels and how much she seems very much several years older after the time jump you can really see the specificity of like how she's matured and also the way they style her is really great like she has these kind of different hair makeovers for different eras that really works so well but i feel like this is a story that like in some ways the general outline is very relatable to a lot of people and you see like a lot of coverage about particularly Asian adoptees for white parents in America because there's such like an industry around this and there's so much kind of trauma around it and people feeling alienated from their birth culture and that sort of thing and the way this movie tells that story is like kind of not pushing back against stereotypes but like making sure it's about a very particular person so like she is very traumatized from this adoption origin but it's not like she hates her adoptive parents and her narrative doesn't follow a familiar or predictable kind of route and the trouble she has interacting with her biological father and his family is like very messy and it's sometimes kind of morbidly funny but it is quite like a dark and intense film it's also got an amazing soundtrack so yeah I just was really impressed with this and I was particularly impressed with the lead actress who has been getting a ton of critical praise for good reason
1: I couldn't believe that it was her first time in a film I just couldn't believe it she's unbelievable and so charismatic
0: the way she has it like looking at people and looking at stuff she has this amazing yeah. sort of like sly, smirky expression so much and it's like oh love her there's like a scene that's set in a goth club and
1: there's a bit where she like pops a collar up and I'm just like nobody has looked this cool ever <laughs> that
0: popped collar jacket which is quite rightfully on the poster for this movie is yes. <laughs> just gore- there's so many great like goth outfits in this because she's got yeah. like a very goth vibe there's so many scenes in this that like I absolutely adored but one of the favorites for me was she's kind of talking to her friend who like works in this hostel about how awkward it is to interact with her biological father and how he's like always drunk texting her and being really emotionally needy and then her new friend who is Korean and lives in Korea is like well that's kind of what Korean men are like you know they're basically just gonna be like emotional vampires and have drinking problems and then she turns around and like on the other side of the table is this guy she had a one night stand with a week before who's like wasted and tries to give her a present and is like moved Korea, stay with me, I love you. And she's like, What the fuck? I don't even remember sleeping with you. <laughs> There's just like a few moments that are just really funny, but they're funny in a really horrible way. It's not kind of the same as the way people are talking about May, December as a dark comedy. It's just like this mm-hmm. film is a drama that's like very sad and upsetting, but really funny in the way that a good drama with like shocking moments is.
1: hmm.
0: hmm. Yeah,
1: definitely.
0: So yeah, Return to Seoul by David Chu. And what is your number eight?
1: My number eight is another horror that we saw together, which is Birth Rebirth, which Ooh. is the directorial debut of Laura Moss, who I was really excited to see this film because I'd seen their short film, which is called Friday, but spelled F-R-Y Day. So it's set on the day that Ted Bundy's executed, but it's not really about that. What it's a like,
0: title! B-
1: Yeah, right? Wow. It's just one of those short films where you're like, I am going to keep an eye on this person because (laughs) this person has some audacity and some like, kind of a lot of potential. So I was excited to see this. I don't know how available it is. We saw it at an LFF screening. I think
0: it might be a Shudder release. Okay yeah that makes sense. It's definitely streaming somewhere because I wrote an article about it for Inverse so I'll just link to that or wherever right. it's streaming but yeah it's available yes. somewhere.
1: Sweet. Oh yeah I think it is Shudder because I think we had a conversation afterwards because because it was like Shudder are releasing the like freak films that A24 think they're releasing and this is like for sure one of them but it's basically a retelling of uh, the Frankenstein myth Marin Island who is incredible and is also amazing In Eileen another great film from this year plays a doctor who works in a morgue who has reclaimed the body of a child who's actually the daughter of somebody else who works in the hospital the mother finds out and they kind of work together to like rebirth this child this kind of like Frankenstein and it's just it's really funny it's really gory it's really great horror. It's the script is unbelievable. I think it got I think it got a script nomination at the Independent Spirits. And I was like, that is a great nomination. And Marion Island is just the the other main character in it is played by Judy Reyes, who was in Scrubs. I didn't watch that, yeah, but I well, kind of she, like recognized. The, the, the her reason face. why this is
0: such fun casting is because she was in Scrubs for like however long Scrubs was in as like a nurse yeah. and she's just this like fun, no nonsense nurse. And in this she is uh-huh. also playing a nurse. <laughs> so everyone's <laughs> yeah. gonna watch it and be like ah!
1: <laughs> but yeah the star here really is Marion Island she really reminds me of I guess they look similar but Andrea Riseborough in the way that Wait, it's because they both plays. got the
0: really pale skin and then a black wig
1: <laughs> yeah and that kind of like almost inhuman alien frankness that they can play really really well it reminded me of her but it's just an absolutely barnstorming performance really recommend it It's really fucked up, but like properly fucked up.
0: It's all reproductive in a way that is like extremely rare for just an American horror movie. Like it legitimately is like not kind of saying, oh, we have a real feminist point to make with this horror movie. It's like, what if this was repulsive and you were making a lot of very morally dubious decisions because it's very seriously a mad scientist movie? Like, she is Frankenstein in all the fucked up Frankenstein shit that entails. Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
1: Very high recommendation. Have a look on Shudder, for sure.
0: Yeah, fully agreed. That is one of the ones that, like, was scraping the number 10 place in my (laughs) list. It's like, it was so good. Loved it. Love a horror movie. All right, my number seven is is another huge hit. It is The Boy and the Heron by Miyazaki. So obviously this is an animated fantasy movie. If you've not seen it, it came out in the US and UK over the past month or so, and has been very commercially successful, unsurprisingly, because all of Miyazaki's films are. The concept is that the main character is this boy who's like 12 or something in 1940s Japan. The beginning of the movie is that he loses his mother who was hospitalized. She dies in a hospital fire. And he and his father move to the countryside to this big house where his new stepmother lives. So there's this young woman who I believe is his mother's sister. So his his father marries his dead wife's sister quite soon after her death. She looks really similar to the mother. It's a bit of a dubious situation, but probably not an uncommon one. And um, like a few of other Miyazaki's films, this feels very much in the vein of high-quality children's literature, because it's from the perspective and kind of attitude of a child of this age. He's very messed up. He's like, you know, there's a scene toward the beginning where he is getting bullied and then like intentionally injures himself, but like not in a way to blame the bullies, because it's like it's partially like a self-harm thing. He's making a lot of bad decisions because he's grieving and he's a kid and like he doesn't have a lot of kind of comforting psychological treatment. Because it's 1940s Japan. (laughs) Um, So he's kind of given the run of this rural estate, which has all these like fun little grannies who are working there. And also this mysterious kind of castle area and a peculiar grey heron, who in the English language version, which I've not watched, is voiced by our very own Edward Cullen. So so it's... (laughs) very thrilled for that Um, apparently he does a fantastic creepy old man hair and voice I've seen a little clip of it it's so good I watched the
1: Japanese version but like I watched the English version which I don't usually do one I was going with a friend and his like young sons And two, I was like, I need to see my king doing this voice. And it's like,
0: how is that Robert Pattinson? The voice cast is off the hook. There was a great article, and I think it was maybe IndieWire, that was talking about how they put together this all-star cast. So it's like partly actors who have been in previous Miyazaki English translations, like Christian Bale, and partly just actors who are good at voice acting and there were a couple who were like I will take a two-line role just because I want to see the boy and the hero (laughs) in a few months before everyone else and it's like I love that decision for you but yeah the interesting thing about this movie is it has a very long preamble before the fantasy stuff kicks in so it really does kind of settle into the idea of being this drama about a fucked up kid who's grieving and wandering around this estate and is injured but then he ends up getting sucked into a fantasy world kind of similar to so many children's fantasy stories and indeed spirited away where he kind of accompanies this grey heron character who's this not necessarily malevolent but not exactly friendly and delightful kind of trickster figure who's this horrible old man who has been turned into a heron and he ends up in this kind of afterlife dimension where he has a series of occasionally dreamlike adventures and it's just as you would expect from a Studio Ghibli Miyazaki film absolutely gorgeously animated the music is stunning composed by Joe Hisaishi who is a very successful and acclaimed Japanese composer obviously I would love to see him get the Oscar for this it's just amazing music there's this amazing kind of little motif that happens when the heroine is first showing up that really signals kind of the idea of the fantasy kind of being injected into the more conventional setting in the beginning. It's just gorgeous. But yeah, it, it's a lot more kind of trippy and dreamlike than some of Miyazaki's other films. Uh, I was quite amused that like we all went on a big family day over the Christmas holidays to see this film together. <laughs> my mom fell asleep several times and she was like, it was fine because you just wake up during another allegory, which, <laughs> which is a really good way to describe it. And then I was texting one of my friends later And she said that she went with her mother who just fell asleep halfway through too. Uh, So it's a real parents (laughs) falling asleep during the Christmas holidays movie. But um, it's quite intense. It's not for younger children. It's definitely kind of for adults. And um, there are some parts that I think other people some people found harder to engage with because it doesn't have this very conventional narrative arc. But at the same time, there was a lot of conversation around that online that was trying to make it sound like it was super pretentious or impenetrable or complicated or intellectual. And it's like, it's not. You can definitely <laughs> have like an 11-year-old watch this and it would be fine. It just doesn't have like a hero's journey, except it kind of does anyway by the end. <laughs> There's just loads of really fun, gorgeous set pieces in this. It's basically what I'm impressed by. And loads of fun birds... Lots of grey birds, lots of cool <laughs> characters, lots of design. bird shit. Yeah, so
1: much bird shit.
0: It's just delightful to watch, and I'm sure I will watch it again at some other point. So yeah, the boy and the heron is my predictable number seven. How about you?
1: <laughs> so my number seven is, and I haven't seen this pop up on many people's top tens because it's not really for everybody, but it's Paul Schrader's Master Gardener. More of a film for people who already like Paul Schrader
0: than it is for anyone else. But I am one of those people, so it's uh, it's my number seven. Can you remind the audience who Paul Schrader is? Because I am familiar, but they may not be.
1: So Paul Schrader is a writer-director. He first became known in the 1970s for uh, primarily writing with Martin Scorsese. He wrote Taxi Driver... He wrote Raging Bull, Last Temptation of Christ, and he went on to direct his own films, a lot of which are big, big faves of mine. So Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, is unconventional biopic of Yuko Mishima is a real fave. Hardcore, which is an early film of his, which is a big fave of mine. Also, more recently, he's worked on this, I think it's called a Man in a Room trilogy or something. First Reformed, The Card Counter, and now Master Gardener. So they're all films with sort of centre these troubled, complicated characters played by, in First Reformed, is Ethan Hawke as a priest who's kind of facing the terror of climate change in the card counter. It's Oscar Isaac, who plays an ex-con, who's kind of going through a lot of moral, spiritual quandaries. Like, they're all very, like, Dark Knight, the soul films. Paul Shreda's also like... Martin Scorsese, his Catholicism and his prior struggles with cocaine abuse <laughs> kind of twin weights on his creative projects. Master Gardener is about the titular Master Gardener, played by Joel Edgerton, who I was kind of like, oh man, I don't want to see a film with Joel Edgerton as the main character. He's one of the industry's middest guys. He's so mad, but... I have to admit that he's pretty good in this, but I think it's mainly the he is an empty vessel for this kind of project. He's playing a gardener at this posh house in America. He's very like man who's had uncertain troubles in his past, who is pouring everything into his vocation. And he works for Sigourney Weaver, who plays this kind of aristocratic lady who owns the house and they have a kind of weird relation like kind of Paul Trader films also have a lot of like oh is she a mother figure a daughter figure or am I going to fuck her <laughs> but which is annoying anywhere else but like if you like Paul Trader you're like you know what, it's fine. It's like, you're like, <laughs> 80 and we've all read your irascible posts on, on Facebook, so... Yeah, oh, that, that's also the thing that Paul Schrader's known for, is the, his posting. He's truly a poster, but on Facebook, specifically. Anyway, so he's kind of, like, settled in... Joel Edgerton's kind of settled in this life, and Sigourney Weaver's niece come, Like, young niece comes to work at the garden. He's training her up. There's a lot of... Are you a daughter figure who I'm going to save from vague problems that you've had in your past? Or am I going to fuck you? It descends into this kind of like smogs board of like white supremacist past gangs. There's like a weird parole officer. There's like he turns out to be an ex-con. There's, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And once again, if you don't already like Paul Schrader films, you're probably going to think it's annoying. Also, the script is written in a very Paul Schrader way, which is very much like nobody talks in that way. And it's very mannered, but it works. And I think a lot of that is to do with the way that he works with actors. And I'd really love to read something about the way that he works with actors because it's like he gets these often very famous, well-known actors and kind of strips them down so that they're like newborn babies and then like makes them do this thing that they're not used to doing. It's it's a very specific thing that he does and how that interacts with his writing is, I think, super effective. But again, it is not for everybody. (laughs) But I absolutely loved it and I thought it was a really smart and quite wry ending to this trilogy. And quite kind of knowing as well, like, he kind of takes the piss out of himself quite a bit in kind of subtle ways. And yeah, I absolutely loved it. But you may vary.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I still haven't seen First Reformed because it seemed too traumatic. And I didn't see the card counter because it took like a year to come out here after it went out in America. And I was just like, where the fuck is it? I want to see Oscar Isaac. (laughs) Yeah. He's
1: amazing in it. I would definitely watch them. Now all three are kind of there. I would definitely watch them in order because they make sense in order, although they're they're not like, the characters aren't related to each other or anything. But First Reformed is probably the best one. But the the very, very quality of Paul Schrader's projects is like, to me, really exemplified in the fact that First Reformed, which is like extremely critically acclaimed, really well thought of, and it's an incredible film, And I think is more appealing to kind of general audiences. That was made like four years after he wrote the film The Canyons with (laughs) uh, Lindsay Lohan and Brett Easton Ellis also writing it and maybe directing
0: it. Man likes to work.
1: Honest to God. A very, very career, but I think always an interesting one.
0: What's your number six, My number six is also from a very mannered director, perhaps our most mannered director, Wes Anderson asteroid city directed and he co-wrote it with roman coppola if you're familiar with wes anderson you will understand that this is very much a wes anderson movie it goes through two different sets of framing devices and it has a massive ensemble cast of very recognizable actors who are uh, enthusiastically working for industry minimum because they want to work with wes anderson so the leads are jason schwartzman and scarlett johansson and then you have tom hanks jeffrey wright tilda swinton Brian Cranston, Edward Norton, Adrian Brody, Leif Schreiber, Hope Davis, a bunch of kids, including Maya Hawk as like a young woman. Maya Hawk's had a pretty good year for someone who is a very limited actress, and I say this not yeah. as a hater, but like she has a pretty limited <laughs> range and has managed to use that range in several good movies as a, as a nipple baby, so congrats to her. But yeah, so this film is set in the 1950s in a middle of nowhere military astronomy base, so there's like a bunch of kids who are youth astronomers have been brought to visit this astronomy zone in the middle of the desert, as per the titular asteroid city. The main character played by Jason Schwartzman is this war photojournalist who has just lost his wife and he is taking his kids uh, through town there. And there is an incident involving a UFO that leads this uh, whole place to be locked down. Um, Spoilers. (laughs) I don't really want to explain the plot or anything. There's not really much point in doing that. But um, I just think it is a pristine example of the Wes Anderson film and it came at a really interesting time because earlier in the year there were a lot of TikTok memes and then media coverage of TikTok memes of people aping Wes Anderson's aesthetic and also there was a lot of this in AI because he has such a distinctive visual style that like you can plug in Wes Anderson into AI and get something that looks vaguely recognizable as like a very centered kind of brightly colored Wes Anderson looking frame and it really kind of doubled down on this widespread belief that he is just this really simplistic director who is only doing kind of shallow visual work. And it's just very twee and it's just very frustrating as someone who enjoys his movies. Like, obviously he's not like a flawless storyteller or whatever, but he does have this unique visual style. And as soon as you watch a real movie by him and compare it to the stuff that people were kind of posting on TikTok, which nothing wrong with posting fun stuff on TikTok, but like the idea that that was kind of seen as a genuine equivalent to his work. It's like, no, the complexity of what he is doing here is completely unmatched. You know he's unmatched because no one else can fucking do it. It's all based around incredibly complex set design and costuming and color choices. And in this, there's kind of a double framing device where the story is introduced via a kind of black and white stage play set. So you're kind of going backwards and forwards between the color story, which is set in the quote unquote real asteroid city, and then this theatrical play that's kind of about the same events. But obviously the real asteroid setting that we're seeing is also plainly fake because it's set in this very theatrically designed set, as per all Wes Anderson movies. I loved this both because it was incredibly well constructed and like fun to watch and had some great roles for about a million actors that we all love, but also because I felt that it was just such such an intelligent portrayal of the 1950s kind of post-war American mental problems basically because <laughs> everyone in this film is very fucked up which is the case for most if not always Anderson movies and it's something that if you only have a shallow viewing you're maybe not paying attention to that much there's so many movies that are set in this post-war period which like American media is completely obsessed with but I think that like a lot of films just kind of don't portray it as effectively as this, as this movie does and it's because it's not really literal it's using a lot of kind of visual metaphor and like theatricality to illustrate the ways in which so many of these characters are grieving and like thinking about stuff in a fucked up way. And it's all presented in this retro futuristic aesthetic where it's all like UFOs and like technology and the space race. And also in the background, they're like doing nuclear experiments. So it's like Oppenheimer is happening round the corner in the same New Mexico <laughs> desert sort of thing. So it was just such a smart but also entertaining film. And I enjoy Wes Anderson a lot. So yeah, how about you? As a Wes Anderson hater, (laughs) um, (laughs) I'm not choosing that.
1: I am a hater, but I also agree with what you're saying that it isn't like easy to pull off, and it is like an actual complex thing rather than than that. But it's a complex thing I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) Number six. Although I have watched a bit of the French Dispatch with Timothy Chalamet in it because I'm that's the worst
0: part of the French Dispatch. (laughs) <laughs> well it's do understand. but I just wanted to look at him the part that's about like teen protesters I was like this is cringe but the rest of it's good <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh, so my number six
1: is another from a, a favourite director of mine which is A Fire by Christian Petzold I just fucking love Christian Petzold <laughs> he's a true doesn't miss director and this was another one that didn't miss. If you're unfamiliar with his work, he, he's he been working since the 90s, but he's kind of got more attention more recently with a kind of run of films, Phoenix, Transit, Undine, uh, which was his most recent one, works a lot with the same actors in kind of overlapping in his films. So works with Franz Rogowski, who you know we absolutely love from our Passages episode, uh, Nina Hoss, a real favourite of mine, and Paula Beer, who is in A Fire as well and was fantastic in Transit and Undine. It's kind of like very similar to a lot of its other films, which is that it's ostensibly quite a run-of-the-mill human drama. I always think that his Posters for his films are really boring and make them look like they're just like period dramas, but then they're like this other, like, weird fairy tale ish, but in the storytelling, not in the visuals. And his films are set in this kind of slightly askew world. So, in this one, it's a group of friends go on holiday to like a little kind of holiday home by the sea and it's a novelist who's trying to write his novel and then his friend who's a bit more carefree and but it's all kind of set in the moment that we're in which well a moment that's maybe a little bit further from where we are which is that this holiday resort people are being advised to evacuate because of climate change because there's forest fires and so there's this kind of, like, lingering threat, but it's, like, they're kind of ignoring it the whole time because of their own, like, kind of personal problems. And they're, and especially this guy who's trying to write his book and he's being very, like... A lot of people have said, "Oh, is this Christian Petzold doing like a version of himself, like a like a kind of version of himself at his worst, where he like has writer's block and he's being an asshole and being pathetic, <laughs> which uh, would be quite funny." But um, there's also this woman at the who's already at the holiday home, played by Paula Beer, who nobody can really figure out who she is and why she's there and what connection she has to the people who are going on holiday. And there's, like, a kind of attraction there to her by the uh, one of the guys who's who's there. And so she's this kind of, like, supernatural figure as well. But then Christian Petzl's really good at doing a supernatural-type woman, but not in a, like, manic pixie track that right. yeah. way, you know? Like, he's kind of
0: really good at that. I mean, the people in his movies are really serious. Yeah,
1: yeah. And he kind of skews a lot of that and there's these like occasional moments where you're reminded of what's going on outside and there's a bit where like it looks like kind of fairy dust is falling but it's like actually like all this stuff from the forest fires oh. and <laughs> it's not maybe not the best film to start with with his work because I think that it's harder to get what he does from it but especially watching it in the context of I've seen most of his features but I think especially watching it in the context of a couple of his recent ones it's really satisfying and really beguiling and really like a lot to think about, I'm yet to watch it again but I really want to, I absolutely loved it, A Fire, Christine Petzold
0: a regular appearance on our annual episodes because uh, Petzold is one of Morgan's faves, so <laughs> we've had many a recommendation for his filmography. <laughs> but I've only seen his least interesting film, which is Undine, a film that yeah. keeps teasing you that it's going to be about a mermaid, which is why I watched it, and it wasn't about a mermaid. That's not why it's not very good. It's just, <laughs> it's, just it's just an okay drama. Uh, yeah, So number five for me is Anatomy of a Fall by Justine Trier. Which has appeared on many top 10 lists everywhere. This is actually a really normy year for me, not just a lot of mainstream <laughs> hits, but also it's like a lot more white men than I had last year. I noticed. I was like, look, men and. But you know, sometimes that's just the way the cookie crumbles, and also sometimes that's how the British film distribution industry works, so uh, <laughs> these are the films I've seen. But yeah, Anatomy of a Fall, which is a French courtroom drama which has very rightfully received a lot of comparisons to an incredible French courtroom drama that we discussed in last year's Best of the Year episode, which was Saint-Omer, which is, they're both about like how unbelievably bizarre the French legal system is. So The premise of this movie is the main character, played by Sandra Huller, who is a German actress of great renown. She is a middle-aged woman who has a somewhat troubled marriage, and she and her husband and their pre-adolescent son, who is partially sighted, live in this ski chalet, basically. She's a writer. He's an aspiring writer. And the film kind of begins with the husband dying under mysterious circumstances. So he falls in some way off the house. We don't see it happen. We just see the body being discovered. And this leads to a lengthy legal investigation and court case that goes on for fucking ages. So she is not cleared of wrongdoing. So the French legal system has to figure out whether she is guilty of pushing him as the only other person who could have pushed him in this rather secluded house, or if he jumped or fell. And the way this works is basically the opposite of the way Western pop culture generally portrays CSI stuff. The French legal system seems to involve a lot of basically character work. Where they are investigating the entire life story and personality of the person accused and all of the people surrounding this case, which is an absolutely incredible format for a drama and makes me want to watch more French legal dramas. But it also makes you infuriated and so stressed because this is an incredibly well constructed drama with an astonishing, mesmerising actress in the lead role. The boy who plays her son is also fantastic. His name is Milo Machado Grana or Greener, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. He's 15. He's getting a lot of praise for this, as is the dog. There is a great dog actor in the this who <laughs> plays so the family dog. Fucking great dog performance. I don't know how they do those things. And also the two lawyers. So there is her defense lawyer who is played by Swan Arlo. He looks like anime. He's like this gorgeous (laughs) middle-aged man with floppy hair. And I just kept watching the film being like, He's so beautiful, which is like the opposite of what you're meant to be focusing on in this film. But like, he's just so beautiful to look at, to me anyway, this anime man. And then Antoine Reinarts playing the prosecutor yes. who Claire fucking loves. He is this absolute I like slimy him. scumbag. You fucking hate him. You hate him in the
1: film. But yeah, he's yeah. great. One of my favorite French character actors, whenever he turns up in anything, it's like, yes, he's really good in 120 BPM
0: oh fuck yeah i love that movie i didn't realize he was in
1: that yeah yeah he's really good in lullaby the the adaptation of that kind of buzzy french novel that was out a while ago and he's also in the irma Vep tv show that i thought was kind of pointless but he's really good <laughs> in it and he is just a slimy bastard and it's real like it's really like putting this dreamy guy opposite this like slime ball <laughs> it's so good <laughs> I also loved Anatomy of a Fall. That was another like close to my top ten.
0: I just find this like hypnotic to watch. It's won so many fucking awards. It won the Palm Door. It also won the Palm Dog, the Dog Award. This makes me sound like a dog person. I actually dislike dogs a great deal. Um <laughs> but on film it's fine. But yeah, the script is fantastic, the direction is fantastic, the character work from Sandra Huller is amazing. I was just like enraptured for two and a half hours in this extremely dense, talky movie about middle-aged people <laughs> having marriage problems, which is not usually a subgenre which I would be into.
1: <laughs> it's also got really great use of of a recurring music cue, yeah. which is this like Steel drum version of PIMP
0: oh, by 50 Cent. It's incredible. They have, to,
1: they have to keep playing in like reenactments and it's so fun. There's so
0: many just like morbidly funny moments in this movie too. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's my number five, Anatomy of a Fall. How about you?
1: My number five is our first double, which is my number five is Return to Soul, which I also just thought was absolutely brilliant for pretty much all the reasons that Gav said it was brilliant absolutely stunning. Couldn't believe it was her first performance. It's on movie I felt like it got buried a little bit on release, but absolutely watch it because it's fantastic. And uh, Gav mentioned that it had a brilliant soundtrack, but I just want to reiterate that because it is, I think it's my favourite score of the year. It's composed by Jeremy Akash and Christophe Musset and it's very gothy in the way that like a lot of her outfits are and a lot of the settings are and there's like this one track which sounds like Bella Lugosi's dead by
0: (laughs) Bauhaus, but it isn't
1: but uh yeah, absolutely brilliant. Return to Soul,
0: my number five. Yeah, this is definitely me and Claire's zone. Okay, we are on to my number four now. We're in the we're in the zone, the top zone now. So mine is The Peasants, which is directed by a married couple, DK and Hugh Welchman. Uh this is a Polish film. These directors previously made the film Loving Vincent, which I've not watched, but um, their mode of filmmaking is utterly unique. No one else is doing it like this. They make animated films which are animated entirely in oil paints. They film the whole movie with actors first, and then it's kind of similar to rotoscoping, where they have just hundreds and hundreds of artists who paint a version of what has been filmed. So it looks relatively like live action but it's painted and um, there were just hundreds of artisans working in this throughout central Europe. There were a lot of artists who were working in Ukraine and obviously the war broke out midway through making this film. This has been nicknamed the slowest possible way of making films. It takes them like at least five years to animate everything. So like they had to figure out ways to either get people out of Ukraine or to make sure that the power was still on and the buildings they were in and that sort of thing. So it's had a very complicated kind of political backstory. But the the art style for this is like there's a lot of Parts that are inspired by nineteenth uh, and twentieth century Polish painters—it's absolutely gorgeous. If you kind of look at side by sides of how the how the lighting is done and stuff, it, it's different to me from like traditional rotoscoping in a kind of photorealistic way because they're clearly making it look like a painting. It's gorgeous, and I was kind of curious about this going in because, like as I said, I'd not seen Loving Vincent. And I was like, maybe this is going to be a bit gimmicky because like for the first 15 minutes, I was just like, well, this kind of just looks like someone's painted over a live action movie. And then I just really <laughs> got sucked in. Um, this is an adaptation of a Nobel Prize winning novel by Vladislav Raymond. So this was like 1920s and it's a set at the kind of turn of the century. And it's a familiar kind of conceit where the main character is a young woman who lives in a small, very poor Polish village. And it's a very patriarchal society where her only real route forward in life is to marry well. So she's this very beautiful, charismatic and implicitly sexually active young woman, but it's obviously also this very conservative Christian community where you will be shamed and everyone always knows your business if you are having affairs with people. And she is pressured into marrying the richest peasant in the village whose son she is already sleeping with because the richest peasant in the village is this just old ugly man (laughs) and she's this gorgeous young woman and she just likes to make art. She's kind of lazy, but like in a way that's very relatable. And it's this tale that's sort of about how women are commodified and forced into marriages and undervalued, but at the same time, all of their sexual desires are shamed and punished, which is a very familiar format, as I said, but it was executed in such a compelling way. The lead cast, all of whom are I think largely completely unfamous Polish actors are all absolutely incredible. And the art style really just worked so well for this. I was just really enraptured by it as I moved on. And the music is fucking amazing. This is like my favorite score of the year, I think. It's um, by, I think, like a Polish hip hop artist, but it's like it's modernized Polish traditional folk. So it's by this guy named L.U.C. Lucas. Rostowski. it's just so good there's this amazing kind of way that it moves through the seasons so like each part of the film is a different one of the four seasons and there's different musical themes for the seasons that kind of tie in with the visual style it just gets like darker and more unpleasant as this woman's marriage goes along and like the way she's kind of trapped in the society she's living in And to me, it also had a really interesting relationship with the modern day concept of cottagecore in a way that I'd really like to write about when this film goes on more general release this month. Because visually, all the kind of young women in this have these really distinctive, beautiful outfits, like peasant outfits, as we would kind of recognize, I think. You know, there's so many paintings of women who dress like this in Central Europe, and there are so many people who have this like nostalgic attitude toward the way that these people look like, often in a very white supremacist way, where it's like, look at these beautiful blonde peasant women with like braids and colourful skirts. And there's all these very elaborate like wedding outfits that they clearly are kind of reusing for every girl in the village. And um, she also makes all this kind of paper cut art. And there's lots of beautiful landscapes. It's also like the main actress has a very clear case of cell phone face. Like she doesn't look historical at all, but it kind of worked for me because you're watching it and you're like, she looks like a modern TikToker who's wearing a oh. cottage court outfit and stuff. But like every part of the narrative is like, this life is hell. You don't want to live here. It's horrible. There is no upside to any of this. Sure. She wants to like make art all day, but actually she's going to have to like fuck this old man. Oh wow. So I, I just like <laughs> found it so interesting and so emotionally intense. Like I was crying toward the end. It really surprised me. So, um, if you have a chance to see the peasants i imagine this will this will like be a bit of a divisive one i think i don't know if it'll be for everyone also yeah obviously it has a lot of sexual violence in it of course <laughs> unsurprisingly <laughs> there's like not positive sex stuff happening in this movie but yeah I, I loved it the peasants by dk and hugh welchman i think i'll watch that after
1: hearing you talk about it because i kind of dismissed it as being quite gimmicky i saw the trailer a couple of times. But hearing you describe it makes it seem more appealing. As much as a film that is maybe dealing with some difficult things can be appealing, <laughs> but you know what I mean. <laughs> I think the cottage core kind of comparison is interesting as well. Somebody commissioned Gav to do that. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna be sending my pictures out this week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so my number four is a film which has been battered by a non-existent UK release schedule, which is uh, Kelly Rykert's showing up which uh, actually, I think, debuted at Cannes Venice in 2022, but was on general release in America this year and this year, 2023. And I saw it at what I think was one of its only festival screenings in the UK. But it's a wonderful film, and I don't think it's even available on demand in the UK yet. It's just like, absolutely, they've wrecked it. Which is really weird, because their last film, first cow was quite successful.
0: And this has like a name actress in it, you know, because yeah. Michelle Williams and her, are obviously long time collaborators. Yeah. I really like this movie too. It was on my kind of just after the number 10 spot. Yeah. It's such a wonderful film. And
1: again, another one where it's like, if you like her thing, you'll probably love it. Kelly Rekker is an amazing indie director, makes a lot of films about people who kind of like working class people struggling in quite difficult environments, usually quite rural environments. She's worked with Michelle Williams, who stars in this a good number of times before, in Wendy and Lucy, Meek's Cut Off. Certain Women was a film of hers that I absolutely loved. Great movie. Has an amazing performance from Lily Gladstone, who obviously was in the Killers of the Flower Moon this year, which I really recommend. Old Joy is another one of hers, which is a wonderful, wonderful film. And First Cow, as I mentioned, absolutely gorgeous as well this one is quite a different setting from kind of first cow and and more of a kind of well-known films which is that it's um, a contemporary setting and still in a kind of rural-ish place kind of more small town and it's a, an art school which also kind of doubles as like an artist retreat there's like students working alongside artists um, and michelle williams plays one of the artists She is shown to come from kind of like an artist family. So she makes ceramics, uh, which are made by a real artist whose name I can't find currently. But uh, there's also a really nice short film that Kelly Reichardt made that's on the Criterion channel at the moment, filming artists in studios. That would recommend as a little companion piece. It's such a good film about the way that life gets in the way of art and the way that problems and f- dealing with family and relationships and dealing with, you know, this artist played by Michelle Williams has to get, she doesn't have any running water in her house and she her cat's interrupting her all the time and she has to deal with like quite difficult family stuff. She also is working in
0: the place. She, she also is like terminally uncharismatic because like, you can kind of yeah. see it's like, oh, she's part of this artist community and you can understand how much of her career is about networking and she is just like not networking she is just absolutely the most like boring kind of uncharismatic (laughs) charmless dully dressed person and like she is around quite a lot of people who are annoying and obnoxious of course but it's like you're just like oh why can't you be a different person and it's like that's not how people work
1: (laughs) I think it's really interesting that she is the protagonist of this film because she's so not a protagonist. And I think that that is something that Kelly Reichardt's really good at, is taking people who are maybe a bit overlooked by a fault and putting them in the centre of these films. Like... Hong Chao, who's really great in the film, plays, it's so funny, she plays like her, awful landlord, awful landlord, who's also an artist, but she's like really, the two have got like this really interesting relationship, which, which rang really true to me, which is, they're not quite friends, but they're not quite enemies either. And they've also got this thing where she's a landlord and, and she's not getting her, water fixed and instead is like doing some whimsical thing like finding the perfect tire on the street so she can make a tire swing and it's like when are you get my water sorted and it's just <laughs> really really funny and really believable and there's this like whole conceit in the film where where Michelle Williams shoes this pigeon out of her house and then Hong Chau finds it on the street and it's like we now have to save this pigeon Hong Chau has also got obviously got more money than Michelle Williams and This pigeon thing is such a great depiction of how people who are rich and charismatic and kind of like can get things in life can treat things like this, like just another like whimsy. They go
0: through everything very easily, whereas there's this huge chore from Michelle Williams. Yeah, it's
1: such a subtle, often very funny, very maddening depiction of that it's about class but it's not about it in a didactic way at all and they don't hate each other they kind of exist together and you know it's all working towards Michelle Williams putting this art show on it's also got Andre 3000 in it as workshopping a, his
0: flute album <laughs> workshopping his flute album when it
1: came up it was like flutes by Andre whatever his actual last name is and it was like
0: yes here we go he chooses the best acting roles. Honestly, he God, was in Claire like, Denis' spaceship movie. Yeah, I was like, yeah. Andre. <laughs> so great.
1: And he's playing uh, like a technician yeah. at this art school and he looks so good and it's just like imagine Andre 3000 the hot talented star was like just this guy who had a killed. <laughs> you know, there's this like magical moment where like she brings this work out of the kiln and i think it's quite ugly but like <laughs> she <laughs> she loves it and he loves it and and people are being like oh wow and it's just like such a nice little moment and and it reminded me of the bit in first cow where like they're making the cakes like the little donut love the love cakes. first cow kelly Reichart just does these like small moments of like human endeavor and connection just absolutely perfectly like with such care and this film is, is another just fantastic example of that.
0: She's, she's so observant. I love her collaboration yeah. with Michelle Williams. Another yeah, thing I liked totally. about this film, like you were saying, you thought that the sculptures were ugly. This is perhaps the number one type of art that like I can't really engage with. She makes clay statues that are just like of human figures and they're kind of scraggly. And I was like, this isn't yeah. good to look at and I don't understand what this is meant to be about, quote unquote. <laughs> But if anything, that made it better as a concept. Yeah. She's not like, oh, I'm gonna be famous. She's like absolutely compelled to spend her entire life dedicated to this form of sculpture that like she's showing in like small galleries and a lot of people who are there are just there it's to drink wine. It's not cool. It's not yeah. interesting. It's not cinematically cool. You can't have like a big Hollywood ending where it's like a triumph. It's the best art ever made. It's just like, <laughs> well, she's done it and now she has to keep doing it forever because that's how the creative yeah. spirit works. And I was like, there's such a very good depiction of art and the artistic community. Yeah.
1: <laughs> definitely, definitely. Like you say, the, the show at the end, it's not cinematic at all, and it's but it's still filmed in such a nice way and a way that kind of replicates the way that you would look at this kind of work as well. And I just absolutely loved it. Gorgeous. Justice I for love Kelly. Kelly. I will watch any Honest new movie she us. does.
0: So we are coming in now with my number three, which is probably going to win Best Picture unless Oppenheimer does. It is Killers of the Flower Moon by Martin Scorsese. <laughs> I'll just say at this point that that's also my number yeah, three. Okay. We can do. Do we go <laughs> joint number three for those who have been living under a pile of rocks? This is a uh, kind of Western crime drama which is adapted from the non-fiction book by David Grant, which is equally acclaimed and it stars in the lead roles Leonardo DiCaprio, Lily Gladstone and Robert De Niro. Obviously the two men we've heard of enormously, Lily Gladstone. This is her big breakout role, but she has been in various other projects, including the film that we mentioned in the Kelly Reichart section, uh, Certain Women, which she's great <laughs> in, opposite Kristen Stewart. But yeah, this is about colonialism and a bunch of awful people killing a lot of Native American women who they were married to in order to inherit land rights. And it is a sprawling three-hour-long epic which held my attention throughout. It is gorgeously shot. It is the work of an expert in the field for decades with incredible performances in the lead roles in like a variety of different tones of role, which I think is quite an interesting thing to talk about because you've got Leonardo DiCaprio as this very stupid, venal, ugly protagonist basically as as the main character. And I think also like people are going to have such radically different views of him as a character. And I think also like the way that you view his perspective is just going to be so affected by your politics going in, your knowledge of the story, your racial background, that sort of thing. Cuz there was definitely a section like towards the first part of this movie where I was like Oh, maybe he's going to be like the good white guy, <laughs> you know?
1: Because <laughs> I hadn't read the book. <laughs> yeah, I was like, because yeah, yeah, I was having yeah. this
0: very like Caucasian perspective, where I was like, well, maybe he is going to like do something vaguely sympathetic to help his wife, <laughs> who he clearly loves. And it's like, no, he is going to be despicable, evil, awful, selfish, pathetic, and just like constantly under the thumb of his conniving and even more openly evil uncle played by robert de niro who is playing this like practically like pantomime villain role and then lily gladstone Mm. has this very subtle really draws your eye every scene she's in very emotionally sincere role where she's not on screen all of the time but whenever she is you're just like god she's a good actress very emotionally engaged and engaging and very funny. Lily Gladstone is amazing. She's just like luminous. And I think Scorsese really kind of gives her all the movie star treatment that she deserves.
1: I agree. Just like echoing pretty much everything that you've said. Stunning performances all around. I would agree that it is a master at the top of his game. It's a gangster movie, but it's a more unconventional one. And I remember like, you texted me after you'd seen it saying that it should be taught in schools, which is also absolutely true, but it doesn't feel yeah super didactic. It doesn't feel like it suffers from that. Yeah, it's so engaging. I didn't feel the length at all. I liked the Irishman a lot, but I did feel like that was very long and could feel myself like at the end twitching a little bit. But <laughs> um, this one, absolutely not. The music's incredible. My hero, Thelma Shoemaker, Martin Scorsese's longtime editor, I think it's some of her best work, just all-round incredible. And I'd read the book as well. I don't no, know if I hadn't you'd read, read it. the book. But I thought that it was like a really clever adaptation of the book as well. It's like so difficult to adapt something like that and to make it into a coherent story that does the story justice and does the people justice, but also is compelling as a film and a narrative. And it absolutely achieves that. I think as a work of adaptation, it's
0: Yeah, I mean, there's been so much interesting coverage and also discussion about... The coverage of this film and the creative process, because as far as yeah. I can tell, the book is more to do with the investigation into these murders and the conspiracy of the white settlers mm-hmm. against the native population in this area. And then that was initially what Scorsese was going to do was focus more on the kind of traditional crime drama over that he is so well known for. And then during the research process and collaborating with a lot of Native American people who were acting in the film and acting as consultants and working on kind of language stuff he decided to switch the perspective more so it's a lot more about just the the day-to-day life of these people and Lily Gladstone's character Molly Kyle and her community in Oklahoma so it's like this this reservation community it's so kind of rich and dense there's so much going on in this film because like there's loads of time to play around with like it needs to be this long and there is this huge expansive cast of just amazing, amazing character actors in a very different way from Oppenheimer. And also it's kind of obviously because Yay. so many of the character actors are Native American actors, it's like they are getting more screen time than they have in other projects. So there's quite a few kind of like breakout performances in this, along with more expected people like Jesse Plemons as the investigator and John Lithgow, who like pops up and you're like, John Lithgow!
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just brilliant, an absolute masterpiece. I think maybe in that way where it's like different to have bests and favourites, I think it's the best film of the year. But it's not quite my favourite.
0: Speaking of, what's what's your number two? What My number two is May December by Todd Haynes. uh, which I assume is probably going to be your number one or two. But yeah, (laughs) May December. Fucking great movie, incredibly fun to watch. One of the extremely few smart, respectable art films released through Netflix that actually was probably a good idea to release through Netflix because so often movies that come out via Netflix just like sink without trace or are poorly received or they just don't get like marketed correctly but like this is such a good combination of attention grabbing and fun and like an actually real smart movie for adults and it's like yeah it's got that scandal vibe that can actually work with terrible Netflix promotion <laughs> but yeah obviously Todd Haynes an overinvested fave I'm a I fan think. Claire's a fan Morgan's a fan I don't know if Stefan's ever seen a movie by Todd Haynes I'm sure he'd like Velvet Goldmine But this film, obviously, it is um, extremely loosely inspired by a true story about a a kind of 30-something woman who had a quote-unquote affair with a child, uh, a 13-year-old boy. And in this film, we're seeing this through the perspective of Natalie Portman's character, who is a TV actress who goes to visit this couple, who are now a married couple, middle-aged, to research a film role where she's going to make a TV movie movie playing this woman, played by Julianne Moore, who is married to her much younger husband, Charles Melton, And I was thrilled to see this film with absolutely no preconceived awareness of what it was about. All I knew was that the program or whatever, it's like, Natalie Portman is researching a scandalous woman who is known for her tabloid affair with this man. And I started watching the film and I was like, gosh, he's a lot younger than her. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then I was like, also because they're talking about how he was in sixth grade, I was like furiously sitting there like, "What sixth grade? How fucking young grade? was he? And it's like the answer is like 12 or 13 years old. It's like absolute despicable Bad. situation. But um, this movie is, as I can 100% trust Todd Haynes to always be, pristine conceit amazing sort of melodrama the screenplay is by sammy birch Um, she is quite rightfully getting a lot of acclaim for this this is her kind of breakout script she also wrote the upcoming or perhaps not upcoming coyote versus acme semi animated film at warner brothers which is one of the warner brothers movies that got (laughs) shit canned by their evil ceo and may not be coming out and it's like i want to see what this woman's like weird animated comedy looks like Yeah, me too. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this movie, just the, the way that it kind of interacts with the ethics of the central relationship and like the prurient interest that Natalie Portman's character forms about this couple. And then the performances all the lead actors are making. And then the way that Todd Haynes is playing with the melodrama genre. Oh, fucking great. And also, I'm sure Claire's going to talk about this, but great supporting role for Corey Michael Smith as Georgie, <sighs> the brother. Let's put that on ice,
1: because it may be making an appearance in my...
0: Okay. (laughs) What's your number two? (laughs) So my number two
1: is Passages, Iris Axe, which you already know me and Gav both really
0: liked. Yeah, check out our episode on that.
1: A relationship drama about a love triangle between Ben Whishaw, Franz Rogowski and Adele Exakbalos and it's absolutely gorgeous, it's really funny, very true. Franz Rogowski is um, a chaos agent, film director, who is in a long-term relationship with Ben Wishaw, and then has an affair with a woman, and a chaos ensues, and he kind of rattles across Paris between the two of them, and it's kind of filmed in this way where I I kind of mentioned a lot when we did our episode on it, Iris Axe referred to it as an action movie and it's very much about the movement between these characters and the way that desire propels this movement. It's a very energetic film in a way that feels very human and crucially I think as a queer person who often finds depictions of somebody who fancies more than one gender, cringe it's not cringe it's really natural
0: well well there's no sort of like tedious coming out arc or like no buzzword heavy conversations about identity politics or sexuality yeah which yeah, is like yeah. i'm not saying that's like a bad thing in yeah, general yeah, but it's like yeah, exactly. it would make absolutely zero sense for the characters in this context when you're trying to make a story that like doesn't offend anyone yeah. <laughs> that's bad you know it's like i'm not saying like oh you need to be edgy and like try and offend people but like most of the time the conversations and relationships that people have in real life are messy and informed by their preconceived ideals which are not going to fit in with not offending the audience (laughs) and this is a film about some very messy and in the case of the protagonist terrible people (laughs) absolutely
1: yeah it's a movie now so when you're going to movie to watch return to soul definitely also watch passages the costumes are absolutely sick as
0: well the other day i was scandalized they didn't get nominated for the costume designer guild award and i was like oh wait a minute it's probably because it's not american because i assume that's all american people then i was like okay i'll I'll delete my little (laughs) posts i was complaining about that we did talk about the costumes at length in our podcast about passages so uh please watch it and then check it out for sure ben wish god love him. oh
1: ben check out what is as Gaby described, Ben Wishaw fan hour.
0: Yes. <laughs> podcast about passages and Franz Rogowski, who he has like the, the most like critically acclaimed filmography of anyone currently like of that generation. Just amazing. Yeah. So I guess we're at my number one now. My number one is a film that has like four different titles. The English language title sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it is called The Taste of Things. Oh, In French, goodness. it is called La Passion de Dodin Buffon. And then it was previously called The Pot au feu The Pot au feu is a much better title because that's what it's about. It is directed by Tran Anh Hung, who is a Vietnamese French director who I've actually not seen any of his other movies, but he is a very kind of acclaimed and prolific director of about 60. This is a French film and it stars two of France's greats, which is Juliette Binoche and Benoit Magimel who we actually discussed in our episode about the piano teacher, Claire and I. So I had done my homework for this, having seen obviously many Juliette Binoche films and being introduced to a much younger Benoit. But this film is all about food and cooking, one of my (laughs) favourite topics. And it is set in France in 1885. It has extremely period-specific costumes, precisely at 1885, which I enjoyed, (laughs) but is not relevant to the quality of the film. And the main characters are Eugénie, who is Juliet's character, who is the in-house chef for a very famous and successful French restaurant owner. So they live together in this gorgeous country house where they cook together. She is... Technically his employee, but like they have this very close and clearly very long term professional friendship, relationship, respect for each other as artists. They are both tremendous gourmands and um, he has this social circle of kind of middle aged and older men who come round and enjoy her incredibly complex meals which involve a vast amount of meat that as a vegetarian I can appreciate on screen but cannot eat much (laughs) like my appreciation of Hannibal which was my (laughs) origin story for becoming a chef myself I say chef, chef my vegetarian home cooking but yeah it's just absolutely to use a disgusting and hideous phrase it's food porn just very unclassy way to describe it but much of the story kind of just takes place in this beautifully shot late 19th century kitchen the one thing about this movie which does not Ring true is that there should be about 10 more servants in this film. <laughs> you, I, <laughs> what you have in this film is you have Juliette Binoche, you have her kind of assistant who is this woman in her like early 20s, and then this woman's uh, young cousin who's this teenage girl who is clearly some kind of food prodigy and like loves to eat and wants to learn to cook from Benoit and Juliette. But um, it's about this very kind of like slow burn relationship between these two people of a certain age and their friendships and just their like respect for each other and their love of cooking and like the complexity of what goes into this food. And also like Benoit's relationship with the rest of the kind of French food establishment because clearly there's a lot of like snobbery in French cooking and um, there's a lot of kind of competitiveness and stuff that he clearly has no interest in anymore. And everyone he respects has a lot of respect for this woman who is just like a a private person who like isn't someone who's famous but is very well respected by the people in her immediate circle and she just loves to make food and loves to grow food in the garden and have a tremendous amount of knowledge and I love watching movies that have a lot of um, intensive on-screen process you know whether it's sort of someone making art or making food or dance or mechanical stuff like I really love the movie Thief because there's so much detail in the engineering of how they do the heist breaking stuff and that so it's just a type of storytelling that I really enjoy and obviously tremendous actors and gorgeous gorgeous production design for this food and cooking I just enjoyed it so much and it's so kind of emotionally sincere and uplifting without being like a schmaltzy type of film, which obviously is not a type of film that is welcome on this podcast. We are not really a <laughs> deeply sentimental area. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Tran Anh Hung's film, The Taste of Things, which I don't know is on general release yet. Actually it's not interest. on I'm general actually, release yeah, in the UK yet. Yeah. It's not in the UK. yet. I watched it as a, at a film festival, but um, it's just absolutely gorgeous movie.
1: Yeah, I'm pumped to see it. And I think that Juliet might get a nomination. But I've not seen any of his other films as well. I'd, I'd have look to see what I think
0: his films mostly stay in France, whereas Juliet is more of an international She's name. She's
1: an international girl. Yeah.
0: Even more excited to see that after hearing that it's your number one, for sure. Oh, and it's sexy, which I momentarily forgot So yeah. I was just remembering. Like I was like, "Oh yeah, I love Juliet. She does such like a variety of really bold roles." And I was like, "Oh yeah, she is like fully nude in this as a <laughs> six year old, which um, obviously we shouldn't consider to be bold, but it's very French of her." So yeah, God's very page. French. She loves getting a kit off, though. Yeah, Still. she does. Good on her. There's an absolutely incredible scene where we see the comparison of her like bare body to like a a very slick pear, a poached pear. <laughs> And I was like, yeah. I love it. I love it.
1: <laughs> you can literally only do that in France, yeah. and they're so good at it. <laughs> oh. So my number one, as hinted at very subtly, is *May December*. Amazing performances. Todd Haynes is the king. Great scripts. The soundtrack is banging. It's so good. Perfect melodrama. Also comedy. Also like horrific meta narratives and the classic kind of two women becoming one and melding with each other and it plays with so many pre-existing tropes and genres and expectations but doesn't do what you expect with any of them and it's incredible but mainly what I want to talk about is Corey Michael Smith who is in two scenes, three scenes if you include one where he's like just in the background I think. And it's honestly, he gets my supporting actor of the year with all due respect to your boy from Riverdale, Charles Melton,
0: who was also amazing. Charles Melton, absolutely incredible. The way, that so he, the way that he kind of embodies the physicality of... Someone who has been trapped at being a thirteen-year-old, while uh-huh. also very clearly being like he is functioning in society as a person in his mid-thirties and is like raised these two kids and has like a job and stuff. But like, mm. there's a lot of him that is still this child, and it's like this piece of acting that is very noticeable and easy to understand by the audience. But that doesn't mean that it's not incredibly impressive. Yeah, yeah. And oh god, he's so fucking good. What a great role for him.
1: Such a great role, and. I was reading about how he put on a bit of weight for the role and I think we remarked about it at the time because me and Gav went to see this together. He just has that like suburban dad's body, but he, like you say, he embodies it with this very particular physicality. Also, what a role to come from, from being in Riverdale.
0: (laughs) I mean, I love the way that he's kind of talked about it being like, this is my acting school, which is the case historically for a lot of actors who came up through team dramas or or soaps, where you have to do a lot of work. Like, you have to be acting, you know, every week you're doing a lot of extreme stuff, stuff that doesn't fucking make sense sometimes. And like, even though this film is a melodrama, he is playing the role that's not the melodrama role. So it's like a really interesting place to slot him in. Whereas obviously Natalie Portman is like great at melodrama and Julianne Moore has been working with Todd Haynes for years and like is very familiar with his style of storytelling so like she knows just where to slot in there and god she's So disturbing and funny in this. So
1: you're like, she has so many lines where you're just like, I literally grabbed Gabby. Just so many
0: incredible moments. And this lisp which comes in and out depending on how much she wants to be like, I'm like a little baby, feminine little girl. And it's like, you're 50 (laughs) and you're a sexual predator. that line where she's like I am naive and it's like <laughs> fucking hell absolutely nightmare it's and so there's all kind of the background stuff of there clearly being a bunch of people in their suburban community who are just like yeah they're just like a normal couple we support them and then there's a bunch of people off screen who we never see who are clearly like uh, let's not go to that house yeah 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 and all the interactions between Charles Melton and his kids who are now older than he was yeah when he was in a relationship with this woman in her 30s Because, like, his kids are now college age. Yeah, it's just, there's
1: so much.
0: And it's a really fun movie while also being incredibly dark and dealing with this, like, disturbing subject matter. It's very boldly both those things at the same
1: time, which I think is such a hard thing to pull off. And Todd Haynes is one of the only people I would trust to pull it off. But yeah, mainly want to shout out in my recommendation, my boy of the year, Corey Michael Smith. Star of TV's Gotham. Which is a breeding ground for freaks. And this boy, this vision, (laughs) is playing one of Julia Moore's children from her previous marriage. The family that she dumped to be with Charles Melton when he was 13. And he's in like two scenes. And when he comes on screen, my jaw was on the floor. I just couldn't believe it. It's like this...
0: Energy. The energy. Energy and vibes.
1: The broken... Audacity, the slyness of him as well, you just don't know what this guy is. It is so compelling, and it's so what did you do to be able to do this? The bit that I'm talking about is like there's one monologue that he does when Natalie Portman asks him, you know she's interviewing all these people from the town, and she asks him all like so how did it affect you' And he's like talking about how it ruined his life, but just in a way where it's like, uh, I can't even describe it. It's just so (laughs) fucking good. And now I'm obsessed with him. I am watching a Netflix show that he's in that is not good, uh, but he's great (laughs) in it. I feel like that every year. This is my Mike Feist of the year where it's like, you find some new guy. You've hardly been in anything. You're a little fucking weirdo. You've got that little face and I am obsessed with you. Corey Michael Smith, you'll know him when you see him, because it is some performance, but everything in the film is incredible.
0: So that is our beautiful top tens. And this this podcast is now 100 years long, as is traditional, (laughs) but we are going to very quickly go through some also-rans. We've mentioned a few, we overlapped quite a lot, and I think we both had ones that were kind of in our lower Uh numbers. But a few of mine were... The rom-com Rye Lane, which, very beloved by a lot of people, a mere 83 minutes long, if I recall correctly. This is a rom-com set in London that takes place over quite a short period and is the first time film of a director named Rena Allen Miller. And um, yeah, great rom-com. Google it if you need more information. (laughs) Um, A couple of others would be How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is a political thriller, self-explanatory by Daniel Goldhaber. Fucking great movie. Very Thrilling. Thrilling. Got a really good
1: nomination in for best editing in Independent Spirits. And that is Ooh. like, to me, such a good nomination as well.
0: That's a good, that's a classy nomination. Yeah. My others are Kokomo City by Yay. D. Smith, which is a documentary interviewing black trans sex workers just about their lives. And it's like, everyone in this movie is such a good storyteller. It's such a compelling and interesting and often funny movie. And it's just like very unique in its perspectives, as you can probably guess. And obviously the the director is a black trans woman who like had kind of personal access to these women, which is kind of how this movie came about. It's just like really interesting. And I, I think that's probably going to get some nominations come Oscar season. And then my others would be Godzilla Minus One, which is just super fun. This year is great Godzilla movie. And um, the horror movie When Evil Lurks. Oh, I don't know Which that one. Has a great title. I love it when evil lurks. There is nothing I love more than horror movie titles. <laughs> It's a Spanish-Argentinian movie, which is like a demonic possession movie, but it becomes pretty clear at the beginning that it's actually a sort of semi-post-apocalyptic setting, and it's just very dark and fucked up and has great world building. The only flaw in this movie is at one point they decide to explain the world building, and it's like, you didn't need to explain that to me. (laughs) But if you like dark and fucked up horror movies, When Evil Lurks has got some evil lurking in it.
1: I fucking love evil lurking and horror movies i'm gonna maybe watch that tonight (laughs) Uh, my also runs also would be kokomo city and how to blow up a pipeline which i absolutely loved and wished i could put in my top 10 are you there god it's me margaret which is an adaptation of the i'm definitely gonna watch that beloved novel which i think has the best casting of the year just every single person in it even if they're like a kid in the playground for like two seconds is absolutely perfectly cast just brilliant and great costumes and just a lovely, lovely, lovely film. Sort of similar vibe, just like well-cast, well-acted, good story was uh, You Hurt My Feelings, the Nicole Holofcener film. Uh, she does great rom-coms usually and kind of adult, like adult comedy dramas. And this is another one of those, which is about a novelist Played by Elaine from Seinfeld, her name escapes me, who overhears her husband saying that he doesn't like the book that she's uh, writing. It's
0: such a it's such a funny and also on brand Holocaust of movie concept. Totally, <laughs> uh, and that's
1: absolutely brilliant. And it went straight to Amazon, annoyingly, because it would have been good to see in the cinema. Eileen is another one of mine, which uh, aforementioned Marin Island performance.
0: That's absolutely brilliant. I've been thinking of that as Trash Carol. Yeah, it is Trash
1: Carol. As soon as it starts, the font is like a Stephen King adaptation from 1985. And you're like, yes, we're in. <laughs> brilliant. And another one that's also on movie, which is The Five Devils, which is a French film uh, with Adele Exarchopoulos can't say our last name. I'm not going to attempt it again on this podcast, although I will practice in my own time, which is a kind of supernaturally like, kind of fairy tale-ish things shot on 35mm and it looks absolutely gorgeous. It's very much a three and a half star film but like I haven't stopped thinking about it and really want to keep an eye out on the director who's first time director. I also wanted to mention my favourite film of the year which is under one of my favourite micro genres which is three star film, five star experience. Yes. The science fiction horror Megan which (gasps) I... Yes, yes. As well as Barbie was my favourite time I had in the cinema this year and I would quite like to watch it again with some friends when I was drinking a personal bottle of wine.
0: I fucking loved Megan it's so good I watched that because that was on my list of like mopping up 2023 movies to watch at Christmas with my family and I was like well this is one that I don't need to watch by myself because some of them it's like they're not going to watch this like European art house film but I watched it and my mum who is like a feminist engineering historian and former engineer she was like this is all about women in STEM I love it and I was like that is the funniest reaction but, but she was yeah. having a blast I love so it was that. like great so fun I also love that
1: paired with something that me and my friends who went to see it together we were like looking stuff up about it afterwards and the writer of it when asked why queer people had like really latched onto Megan said it's because it's about found family <laughs> So it's about farm family and it's about women in STEM, which it literally is.
0: I mean, sure, they found Megan in the lab. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a fun year for movies, aside from all the ones we couldn't see because of distribution issues. But yeah, thanks so much to everyone for listening to the end of this podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, please leave us a rating and review on places like Apple Podcasts, recommend our podcast to people, send us messages, we love to get little messages, support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash overinvested, where by the time this podcast comes out, there should be finally the long-awaited review of Our Flag Means Death season two with Morgan, in addition (laughs) to a bunch of stuff about like 2023's best TV shows that we watched, we had lots of little reviews and recommendations in there too. And also, of course, you can request episodes via Patreon. You can get me and Claire or me and Stefan to review movies for you or possibly a couple of episodes of a TV show. We greatly enjoyed watching that figure skating rom-com a few weeks ago. So yeah, Patreon, Overinvested, overinvestedpodcast.com for all the show notes on here. You can check out last year's best movies of 2022, which was our top podcast of the year, I believe. Yeah, Claire, any social medias or updates you'd like to share with the audience?
1: You can follow me on the dying platform of Twitter at Ms. Claire Biddles, same on Blue Sky. And I'm also on Letterboxd, just as Claire Biddles. Also, if you check the link in my bio on Twitter or Blue Sky to my website, kind of little profile-y website, it's got a link to some May-December programme notes that I wrote. And also, I think it's still there. If not, I'll add it. An interview with Dee Smith, who made Kokomo City, which was another one that we really liked. So a couple of connections there to things in our top ten.
0: Lovely. I will try to link to all of the relevant podcast episodes for movies we discussed this week in the show <laughs> notes. There were quite a few of them. But yeah, you can find me on Letterboxd at hello taylor, also Tumblr hello taylor and on Blue Sky at gavia. And I mean, technically, I'm still on Twitter at Hello underscore Taylor. Um, so yeah, thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this long podcast. Yes,'s been I so don't fun. know what's going to be our next episode, but it'll be with someone, Stephanie.
1: <laughs> we can't think about anything else. Oh God, it's been, We've been
0: here for two hours talking about every film we've ever seen. All right, my darling, see you soon. Bye-bye.) Bye. <laughs>